0: you know as a as a body of believers nationally we have to get to a point where we judiciously plead the ecclesiastical extension doctrine
1: hello and welcome to another episode of Law and church a podcast for church leaders. my name is Brian Fitton I'm here with Josh Bryant managing attorney at church general counsel and an ordained pastor hey Josh it's 2020. it's a new year excited to get back into uh, some churches and court episodes yeah here we go yeah this is this is gonna be good I'm, I'm very excited this one is a uh, it's I'm excited because it's obviously it's how churches really need to treat each other how basically they need to grow up. Um, but, you know, we want to do it out of grace, right? But yep. there are some things that um, we need to pay attention to, right? Yep. And church leaders obviously need to uh, make sure to heed some of these warnings because uh, it's real. So um, let's just go ahead and kind of jump into it. Are you, you ready to go? Let's do it, man. All right. So um, let's talk about kind of that first case. So kind of kick us off there.
0: So, you know, the first thing we have listed here for for churches to do to, to, to kind of grow up a little bit, and I don't mean that... I don't mean to be uh, offensive or anything like that, but, you know, churches do go to court. But when they go to court, we can't be arguing out of both sides of our mouth. And I know that there are um, attorneys who are, are, are doing this, but we've got to be very careful and pay attention to what those attorneys are arguing. Because, you know, a lot of times when a church gets sued, they will plead the ecclesiastical abstention doctrine. And we've talked about that on the podcast before, mm-hmm. which is basically this rule that says the courts do everything they can not to get involved in the internal affairs of a church uh, or any religious um, organization. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and so churches are, are really quick to jump on that and, and claim that defense. But sometimes churches sue other people, uh, and they need to understand that when they do that, uh, it's equally as likely that somebody else uh, that the defendant uh, in that case is going to plead the ecclesiastical abstention doctrine and do everything they can to keep that church out of uh, uh, out of court as well they're going to use that as their own defense and so you know we've seen uh, several uh, cases just in this last month, this is in December, that really show kind of a stretch, a pull from the center where the ecclesiastical abstention doctrine should be. We don't really, as a society, need it to go so far that a church can never get sued, but we don't want it to go the other way either, in which a church can never get redress mm-hmm. by going to court. Uh, there's times where it needs to happen, and there are a couple of cases where it needed to happen, uh, at least in in. My opinion in reading the cases, uh, a church needed to be able to get some relief from a court, and the court wouldn't grant it because of that ecclesiastical abstention doctrine. They wow. said we're not we're not getting involved. So, for example, one of them was a, a case out of Texas, and because we're dealing with churches and, and talking about things that uh, you know those churches uh, could take offense to, if we. Um, you know, named them. I'm not going to name the cases yeah, this month, yeah. but uh, one of them was a, a Texas court, uh, and they applied the ecclesiastical abstention doctrine because allowing a church to sue its members who allegedly stole money from the church would push the court too deeply into theological issues of church discipline and things like that. And and so, obviously, if somebody's stealing money from the church, <laughs> you want to be able to get that money back. Uh, but this court um, just declined to do that. It declined to let the church uh, sue for a court order prohibiting a rogue member from filing uh, government documents on behalf of the church. Uh, This was a a handful of members, three or four members, and they filed pleadings with the Texas Secretary of State or, or forms with the Texas Secretary of State changing who the registered agent was and who now it was listed as officers of the the organization that is the church they were constantly disrupting business meetings and and couldn't uh you know they couldn't get anything done because these folks were yelling and screaming at a business meeting it seemed like so you know it um the the, the church needed to be able to do something in order to regain a little bit of control and uh the court said sorry this is ecclesiastical abstention it's your member um you're going to have to do discipline on that. So, wow. um, yeah, it's really kind of crazy. There was another one, uh, court in New, New Hampshire, uh, that used the ecclesiastical abstention doctrine to, um, to, to refuse to allow, somebody, allow a church to, to interrupt uh, or to stop somebody who was interrupting a business meeting. You know, uh, we've had Dr. Rayner on the podcast before, and I read a, a blog that he wrote several years ago uh, in which he talked about cave dwellers, Mm-hmm. Uh, in the church. And he, the <laughs> the cave word cave there is an acronym for constantly against virtually everything. And uh it's a, a good acronym. Well and in every church has its cave dwellers. Yeah. Uh you know you know, the, the the bats flying around the sanctuary. So um but but basically, you know, there's there was a, a person who or family they were occupying the church parsonage they were constantly trying to up in business meetings um, and several other actions and the trial court after they refused to vacate the parsonage after they refused to uh, you, you know let the pastor do his job that the church hired him to do um, the trial court wanted to hold him in contempt uh, and um, wanted to fine them $500 a month as long as they stayed in the parsonage, which is only reasonable as Mm -hmm. rent, you know. Wanted to make them... I mean, the church lost its tax exemption because it wasn't clergy staying in the the parsonage, so there was no property tax exemption. Court wanted to make them pay the property tax. That seems reasonable. You're living there, you know. And the appeals court came down and said, sorry, ecclesiastical abstention. The courts are out of it. We're not going to do that. And so the church was left with... Uh, no remedy, uh, yeah. and so you know as a as a body of believers nationally, we have to get to a point where we judiciously plead the ecclesiastical abstention doctrine because one of two things is going to happen either it's really going to lose its teeth, and we've seen that in some cases that we've talked about in previous episodes of yeah, churches in yeah. court um, or it's going to have so many teeth that Churches can't get redressed when they go to court, mm-hmm. uh, and and both of those are problematic. So um, we got to make sure we're being very judicious in how we we plead that doctrine.
1: Absolutely, yeah, and that's uh, I mean obviously want to be. Weary of those things, and obviously cautious in that area. And there's a lot of times that uh, too far one one side or the other can obviously get us in trouble. So yeah, absolutely. Um, all right. So number two, uh, stop suing one another.
0: You know, you'd think that goes without <laughs> saying. You would. You would think. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, and I know everybody uh, has their preferred translations, but in my translation, it's pretty clear in First Corinthians six that. Uh, We're to settle our disputes together and not go to court as best we can, especially churches suing churches and uh, churches uh, or denominations suing one another. We've got to stop that. Several cases in December of 2019 involved disputes between the church and the pastor. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it was clear from the recitation of facts in these cases that everybody involved just hated each other. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Now, you know, I haven't fully memorized scripture, but I'm pretty sure Jesus didn't say hate one another. Yeah. I'm pretty sure he said love one another.
1: And that's how they'll know that you're my disciples.
0: Exactly, exactly. So, for example, in one of these cases, a church staff member uh, couldn't sit or stand for long periods of time due to a, a car accident and a spinal injury. Uh, and so this employee would uh, would frequently get migraines and severe pain during a flare-up. They'd have to stand up and sit down and stand up and sit down every you know, 20, 25, 30 minutes, whatever. Uh, and so, w- when the employee started working and they had this disability, uh, it was co- they automatically started this employee at thirty-two hours a week. We're going to give this this person a reduced schedule, uh, and that's going to be this accommodation under the Americans with Disabilities Act. And then, as time went on, uh, they said, "Well, you're going to have to start working a forty-hour week." And then HR got involved and said, "Well, let's meet in the middle, and we'll do six six-hour days uh, for thirty-six hours." Uh, but then the employee would have been left alone at the office one day a week and uh, put in a position where, okay, what if he has a migraine? What if he passes out? You know, what happens here? Mm-hmm. Um, you, you know, and so that that wasn't really going to work. The um, church then demanded that this employee provide medical records, which the employee went and did, got, got these medical records, got notes from doctors. Um, and three days later, the church presented that employee with a performance improvement plan saying, well, you're not coming to work, you're... Um, leaving work early, you're not calling whatever, and things just got petty. I mean, one of the the pieces of evidence that the trial court was asked to consider was the fact that the the employee was three to five minutes late. Mm. Now, how petty do you have to be? Uh, which is, anyway, th- things got real petty, um, and ultimately, that employee ended up suing the church for a violation of the Americans with Disabilities Act. Uh, and in this particular case, the court denied the church's motion to dismiss and said, sorry, um, we've got facts here that um, suggest that he's got a case and Mm -hmm. you don't agree on the facts. And when you don't agree on the facts, the only remedy is a trial. And so that case is going to trial unless they settle it. So um, anyways, yeah, that was a a crazy case. And another case... a denomination at the kind of the state level or regional level sued a local church because the church wanted to lease uh, a building to a charter school Uh, and the state state level convention or adjudicatory authority didn't want them doing that. And they sued the church uh, and tried to come in and take over. Um, You know, in another case they were fighting over who got to use the church's logo. There was a denominational (laughs) split and they're fighting. Uh. And that case has been in court for eight years on various eight issues, eight years Wow. Eight years on various issues. And this particular opinion was just on intellectual property issues and who got to use the church logo and who got to say they were founded in whatever year in 16, 1700, whatever. Mm. Um, anyway, it was, we've got to stop suing each other. <laughs> we we've got to stop suing each other.
1: <laughs> yeah. The punchline is we got to stop suing each other, <laughs> especially over uh, some logos and different things. Obviously. Yeah. I mean, they probably needed a rebrand. Exactly. He, he knows, yeah. So. Exactly. Goodness. All right. So number three, be a good neighbor. Again, you'd think yeah, that yeah, yeah, kinda it's kind of goes kind of common sense list, right? Yeah.
0: Like, it really, it really is. <laughs> but you know, churches own property yeah, uh, or yeah. churches lease property, and if they're going to own the property or lease this property, they're going to have neighbors. Uh, that's just the way it's going to work. And so, that being the case, we need to be a good neighbor. We our churches need to be good, good neighbors. Um, you know, one of these cases uh, t- dealt with a church uh, and a neighbor that had gotten along well for years, apparently, but then uh, there was a falling out for some reason, and the church said, okay, well, we're going to build a six-foot privacy fence down down the property line, uh, and th- that's what some folks in the legal world will call a spite fence. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're we're going to build a mm-hmm. fence to spite you. Um, <laughs> the, the difference here was that in places, that fence was only 13 inches away from their neighbor's house, so they can I mean, it's been a long time since I could have squeezed in a thirteen-inch space yeah, yeah. Uh, to do <laughs> maintenance or whatever the case was. Yeah. Uh, and so this lady sued, uh, and you know ultimately had a good case. I mean, uh, she, she lost access to her property because the church built this fence. Uh, and uh, you know what happened in this case? Uh, there was a technicality, and the the court ended up dismissing this this lady's lawsuit against the church. Um, and just for a jurisdictional issue. And so she may bring it back, but mm-hmm. at the end of the day, the, um, the church was allowed to keep, keep that fence 13, 13 inches That's from her crazy. house. So, you know, we got we got to be better neighbors than that. Um, there was another case in which a, uh, one church purchased a building and that building was in ruins and it was listed as a historical site. When they purchased it they purchased it on the the premise that they were going to renovate it and turn it into a community center uh, center and then they were going to have uh, worship services on the weekend and things like that mm-hmm. um, well they didn't didn't do any of that and one of the the restrictions on the deed said you have to let the basically the property owners association the area use the building within reason you know for meetings for community events whatever um, you have to let them use that well that property owners association said we want to use the building. The church said no, it's not safe because it's in a complete state of disrepair. And so the property owners association sued the, the church. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, if we're there are times and places for that. If we're going to get involved in a revitalization effort, if we're going to get involved in, in, you know, bringing a church back up to snuff, we've got to make sure we count the cost going into it yeah, um, yeah. because it, it landed this church in trouble. Uh, when when they didn't do that. And then you really, we, we've got to take care of our property. Being a good neighbor requires us to take care of our property. We don't need runoff, and we've talked about some cases in, in, in church, previous churches and court episodes where um, a church was not properly uh, maintaining its, uh, the, you know, the, the water runoff, and, and ditches got bigger and bigger and bigger until finally it started causing damage to the neighbor's property. Um, and, and in one case this, uh, this last month, um, they they, did, they weren't taking care of their property, and somebody slipped and fell um, mm. on, on the sidewalk uh, on some ice. Uh, and there were some extenuating circumstances. The case ended up getting dismissed, but not before the court said, Listen, as a church, you have a responsibility to keep your facilities and your premises in good working order, such that people don't get hurt when they come on campus. yeah. Um, and so you have a duty to inspect it. You need to know what's going on. Uh, you need to take a look at um, at your sidewalks and see if there's any debris anywhere that somebody could trip on. You've got to remediate those issues. Uh, and if you don't do it, it's going to be assumed that you're negligent. Uh, and, and you know, we're right coming off of the, the heels of this uh, shooting at a church in, in the DFW area, you know, and um, it, it, it's— only marginally related to what I'm talking about here, but that, you know, when we talk about church security, we talk about the people in the parking lot, the people outside being your first line of defense. And it's not just the first line of defense in that you're welcoming people and you're greeting people and you're helping them get inside the door. And oh, by the way, you're looking for people in a hoodie that don't look right and have a scowl on their face or whatever. You know, you're doing those things, but you're also looking for those types of of hazards, yeah. ice on the sidewalk. You are looking for uh, branches or something that somebody could trip all over or whatnot. So, uh, you know, we've got to take care of our property. Taking care of our property makes us better neighbors. So, absolutely, let's be good neighbors.
1: Absolutely. And we talked about that too. I mean, that kind of in a previous episode, of paying your bills. Yep. You know, making sure that basically just take care of the basics, make sure all that's covered because that obviously can hurt the witness of the church. Yeah. Um if you're not taking care of the 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 basic things. Yeah. So. Absolutely. All right. So number 4, one of our favorite topics, bylaws. Bylaws. Yeah. Go, so go figure. Defending against power struggles by getting your bylaws in order.
0: You know, Anytime I read about a power struggle in a church, there's a church split or people disagree about, you know, church discipline or firing a pastor or what we're going to do with the facilities or how we're going to spend money. When they when that spills over into a courtroom, almost every case that I've ever read spilled over into a courtroom because somebody wasn't following bylaws or mm-hmm. they were interpreting bylaws in different ways and listen, when I look at church bylaws, church bylaws are just antiquated. They're old, they're legalese, and I have to really kind of go back to my law school way of thinking in order to understand what they're saying. And they don't have to be that way. They can be very understandable, they can be very simple, uh, they can be bylaws that make it very, very clear who has the authority to do what. Uh, And so... You know there were two cases that I reviewed from from December uh dealing with these power struggles in one of those cases, the pastor and the church they 've been suing each other at various times for three or four years now uh and wow how how a pastor and a church stay in that relationship i don't i don't really know how that works, but uh they're doing it uh, and they've been in court for three or four years on s- several different lawsuits uh and it it all deals with control of the church in in one instance, the church improperly tried to remove the pastor. Um, the court wouldn't have it, uh, and the pastor stayed in his position. Uh, But then in another instance, that church tried to have the pastor held in contempt of court, uh, and the court held the pastor in contempt uh, and jailed the pastor for 30 days. Uh, And the the pastor actually had to serve a few of those before uh, he could uh, get uh, basically a bond pending appeal. And when it went up on appeal, guess what the, the, the appellate court said? ecclesiastical abstention doctrine. <laughs> of course. You of can't course. put the pastor in jail. This is this is a theological issue, and the pastor is exercising a religious belief, and the courts aren't going to get involved in the internal affairs of a church. Mm. So, uh, you know, and th- there was fault on both sides of that particular case. It seemed like it seemed like the, you know, there were a few in the church who were being, uh, uh, you know, unreasonable, and it seemed like the church or the pastor at times was probably being a little bit heavy-handed. But uh, either way, uh, here, here we are again, where Nobody can find relief in the courts, uh, and you've got a pastor and a church suing each other. Um, man, that's just that's not good for our witness. And then in your bylaws, you can need to make it clear who owns the intellectual property yeah, and, yeah. And, and any other property, uh, especially in a multi-site or a church or in a denominational setting uh, where there's more of an episcopal top-down type type polity uh, or church governance. Um, you know, it, we, we talked about the, the case in which they were fighting over who got to use the church logo. Mm-hmm. That was the whole issue, is who got to use the church logo, who owned that intellectual property. And, in, you know, we said that they'd been in court for eight years. Previous iterations of this litigation uh, involved uh, them fighting over who owned the real estate. Did the mm-hmm. denomination own the real estate, or did the local churches own the real estate? And so your bylaws have got to be exceptionally clear about those types of issues. Who has the authority to do what, and who owns what, and so forth. Um, and if we get those bylaws in order, and we make them simple, we make them clear, we have a mechanism and a tool with which we can defend against these power struggles.
1: Absolutely. We've got a few resources out there for that, too. Right?
0: We do. You know, the the website is is up in... in Going, it's we're, we're going to continue to add to it. Uh, but churchbylawsbook.com, that book will be coming out, uh, hopefully here in the next three or four months.
1: Yes, very excited about that. It's definitely going to help a lot of church leaders. Oh, yeah, a, avoid some of these pitfalls. So, um, all right, and number five, our last one, uh, hire people who keep their zippers up.
0: You know, <laughs> every one of these things today, I mean, I wrote this yesterday, but every one of these things, um, really are just common sense, mm-hmm. they're common sense. Listen, if you're a pastor or you're a church leader, you cannot tell somebody of the opposite sex that you supervise or that you counsel in a counseling setting or that you interact with on a regular basis that uh, that you're going to have to put in some long hours and your spouses are probably going to think that you're having an affair. Yikes. You, you can't say that. Yeah. And if you do say that, you certainly can't tell that person that uh, you and I are going to become very close. Oh, goodness. And if you say those things... Uh, especially when you say those things with your hands on her legs. Uh, you, you, you certainly can't uh, tell that person to put their big girl underwear on when they complain that they're feeling a little bit uncomfortable by your comments. Uh, you can't refer to that person as eye candy. Uh, you can't uh, make a comment about their backside. Uh <laughs> Co- common sense.
1: I'm just, I'm just f- confused. Why why can't we do these things, Josh? Yeah, just, uh, yeah, uh, you, you know. Uh, <laughs> that's so crazy.
0: Just I, I'm 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 speechless, but in this one case these were uh the facts. That this is what the pastor was accused of doing. Um I believe this was another procedural case where they were determining, okay, is this something that we're going to decide on summary judgment, or do we need to dismiss the case, or we're going to send it to trial, Mm -hmm. and um, this one's going to trial, Um, and uh, assuming these things are true, which it looks, um, based on some other evidence um, and some other procedures that have gone on in terms of how this person was removed and um, other investigations that happened outside of the trial, it looks like that certainly this is probably something that, that actually happened, um, mm. That is sexual harassment. Yeah. Um, it is illegal. There is no ecclesiastical abstention doctrine on sexual harassment. And even if there were, even if the courts were unintelligent enough to apply ecclesiastical abstention to sexual harassment, where in the Bible does it give us permission to do that? Nowhere. Where, where, where is yeah. there a spiritual basis for doing, yeah. acting like this? So we we've, we can't do that, and we've got to hire people who have better character than that. And then as the church... Uh, you can't make the victim move an office, you can't fire or ask that victim to resign because they're not doing their job when you've moved their office and taken them out of the location where they were working. Uh, that can't be the character of the church leaders, it can't be the character of the church. And we've, we talked last month in some of our episodes about the ethics of the church, the organization itself. What What is ethical... Um, what, what are ethical issues there? Yeah, uh, yeah. And this is one of them. We, we, we have to act ethically and take these things seriously. And in one of these cases, um, it's actually the same case. They moved this person to a different location. They didn't put the offender on paid administrative leave. There was still some contact there. When they moved that person, they... They didn't have access to all the tools they needed to do their job. Um, really kind of just ostracized the victim. You can't do that, yeah. okay? Yeah. And whereas at one point in this particular case, it was probably just the pastor who was in the hot seat. Now it's the pastor and the church, yeah. uh, or the, the, the employer, uh, supervisor and the employer. Both are, are now in the hot seat. So you got to make sure you take care of these things, and, and you do so um, within the confines of law.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And we've started to see that, too, in our in our culture and things coming out. And a lot of times things could have been dealt with, uh, you know, up front and, and taken care of in the appropriate manner. But so many things of trying to hide it and, and adjust things and, again, moving people offside and trying to make it all go away. And a lot of times that gets, obviously, the church in a lot more hot water. So yeah, absolutely. That. All right. So um, with all these, I mean, any kind of final words that you have to kind of— you know, summarize all this stuff. Obviously, it's a lot of information, but for church leaders out there, what, what's kind of a final word? You know,
0: just, just act right. <laughs> just, just act right, you know. Um, you know, when we have some religious liberty things we need to keep an eye on as well, there were a couple of cases that kind of concerned me that I reviewed last month. One of them was a New York uh, case, and it was a law that actually requires churches to get a court's approval to sell real estate. Uh, and one case issued, uh, last month, it was so paternalistic. The, the court was saying, oh, well, this is just not in the best interest of the church. Mm. Okay. For the most part, we do know how to act right. We do know how to make plausible and and rational decisions. Uh, Mm. and we really don't need a court telling us what's in our best interest and to give us permission to sell property. So, uh, now I say that, um, with the caveat that we don't need a court's permission to sell property as long as we're following our bylaws. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if we're not following our bylaws, you're going to have to get the church's permission to do anything. Yeah. So we've got to make sure our bylaws are in order. Uh, there was another case uh, from last month out of Cincinnati that have worked to really stop uh, a Matthew 25 type of a homeless ministry. Um, that The church was never even sued. They weren't even a defendant to this case. Um, but what had happened is a judge Uh, ordered the sheriff uh, there in Cincinnati and the surrounding county to basically arrest anybody who stopped uh, or or interfered with the closing of uh, homeless camps. And this church had a homeless camp on their property, and they were working with these homeless people. but had the church continued to do that they would have been in violation of an order that they had never been served with they were never sued they didn't have an opportunity to be heard or, or mm. notice of a time in which they could be heard uh, and argue their case and so the church sued the judge uh, <laughs> not, which which can be dangerous yeah, um, yeah but they won this was one of those wow. cases where where the the outcome was actually correct the the appellate court came down and said you can't you can't do that you can't hold somebody responsible for an order uh, or to follow an order that they didn't have an opportunity to come and argue. Mm. Uh, and, and so the church was, um, they, they issued what's called mandamus or writ of prohibition. Uh, they're extraordinary writs where you go to an appellate court first before you go to a trial court. And so you um, need, need to continue to watch out for some of these religious liberty cases. They're going to continue to, to cause issues. But at the end of the day, if we'll just act right, you yep. just need to act right.
1: Yep. Oh, I think that's great. <clears throat> Excuse me and even going into 2020 obviously that's a it's just a good word to follow in in daily life and obviously as a church leader um there's a lot more uh, responsibility with that That's been another episode of Law & Church, and all the resources we've talked about today will be in the show notes. Uh, You can get those show notes on the Church Law blog at thechurchlawgroup.com or on our podcast website at lawandchurch.com. And of course, the show notes will always be available in your favorite podcasting app. That's right. And go do us a favor. Please go subscribe and review our podcast. Listen, our heart
0: is for the local church, and there are church leaders who really need to hear this stuff. And your review and subscription of the podcast just makes it that much more likely, and Certainly, we're going to be talking about stuff next week uh, that you're going to want to hear as we go into more detail. So uh, your subscription is also going to help make sure that you have access to that. And so uh, go do that. And then also make sure to go join the Church Law Group on Facebook. Just go to Facebook, search Law and Church, and you will find that group. You can also find the link in the show notes. Thanks, everyone.
1: Yep, And we will uh, see you next week.